Oh Lord, you are great and greatly to be praised. And your greatness is unsearchable. It is overwhelming. And I pray that we would be overwhelmed even more by who you are this morning as we open your word and see how you reveal yourself to us. Lord, as the heavens are high above the earth, so are your ways higher than our ways and your thoughts higher than our thoughts. We cannot know you unless you reveal yourself to us. We can't understand your word unless you open our eyes to see truth in its power. We can't receive anything unless you work in our hearts effectually. And so we ask that you would be working among us this morning by your Holy Spirit. Would you convict of sin and unbelief, even bringing anyone who's still doesn't know you to a relationship with you in Christ? Would you comfort those who are struggling with how hard life is and can be? Would you strengthen our faith to trust you more and more? Lord, we talked in Sunday school how you've ordained that your word is what gives and strengthens faith so that we persevere in faith. And don't curse your name or walk away from the faith when trial comes. So Lord, we ask you to pour out your grace upon us beyond what we could ask or think. In Jesus' name, amen. King Alfonso, the ruler of Spain in the 13th century, once said, had I been present at the creation, I would have given some useful hints for the better ordering of the universe. In other words, I could have helped God do a better job setting up the universe than the way he did it on his own. We might not say it quite as brashly as that, but sometimes we're tempted to question how well God is running things. When we complain about our circumstances, for example, we are indirectly claiming that we could do a better job running our lives than the way God is managing things. And so full disclosure, I do some complaining, and ultimately it's against God to do that. In our text for today, we'll see how God responds to finite human beings who want to challenge how well he is governing this universe. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Job chapter 38 as we continue our study in this Old Testament book together. Job chapter 38. As you remember, Job has experienced one trauma after another. First, he lost all of his earthly possessions. He's financially ruined. And then he lost all ten of his children. And then on top of that, he lost his health, suffering from painful boils all over his body day and night. And he has absolutely no idea why any of this is happening to him. At different points along the way, Job wishes 
he could have an opportunity to meet with God. And so in chapter 13, I should have had you turn there first, 13, verse 3, Job says, But I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue with God or argue my case with God. So he wants to have it out with God and says, okay, God, show up and talk to me. I, I have some things I want to say, and I want you to listen. I'm going to make a case for what's going on here. And then in chapter 23, he says something similar. Verse 3 of chapter 23. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat, his throne. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would learn the words which he would answer and perceive what he would say to me. Would he contend with me by the greatness of his power? No. Surely he will pay attention to me. And Job expects that if God would show up, that he would vindicate his integrity. In other words, that God would publicly show that Job is innocent of serious wrongdoing and publicly show that his three friends were wrong to accuse him of sin and that that's why this is all happening as some kind of punishment for his sin. And if God doesn't do it that way, then Job expects God to explain to him why he has been treated so harshly. So those are Job's expectations. Job's friend's expectations are, if God showed up, he would tell you how bad you really are. Read chapter 11, verse 5 and 6. And we might have some expectations about what we think God should do when he appears to Job. So one example is the author of a book on suffering that sold 4 million copies. That is a lot of books. And just some background, this is a man who knows suffering firsthand in his own family. Very, very sad story. And the way he tried to process the death of his teenage son for, in this weird disease is to say, I either have to choose between God is loving or God is all-powerful, and I can't surrender that God is love, so I will believe and write a book about the fact that God is not all-powerful. And so, when he comes to talk about Job in a book about suffering, which you would hope he would do, he says, God owed Job an apology. He should say, quote, Sorry for all you've been through, but there's not much I could do about it. So that's an expectation. But God does not offer an apology to Job as if he had mishandled the situation. We might want God to tell Job about what happened in the first two chapters. But God doesn't let Job know how this suffering was all designed to show that he is worthy to be honored simply because he's God and not just because he gives blessings. 
Or maybe we think God should reassure Job how much he loves him and how this is ultimately for his good. Just yesterday, someone from our church family was telling me about some friends, a couple in their 30s, just one trial after another. Not little stuff, big stuff for the last couple years. Just almost Job-like. Just big, big stuff. You just ache when you hear about it. And so this Christian sister was in touch with the other Christian sister and just saying, how are you holding up? She says, I still believe in God. And I walked away from him. But it feels like he's forgotten me and I've fallen through the cracks. So what would you say to this Christian sister? Wouldn't you want to tell her, no, God hasn't forgotten you. God cares for you. God loves you. Wouldn't you want to do that? So I encouraged this person who told me the story, like, well, at least right about the prayer of the, the Father in Mark 9. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. I believe you really are there and you really do love me and really care and have a good plan. Help my unbelief. It's really hard to believe that right now. That's how I would have tried to comfort this sister. But God doesn't do it that way. God loves Job. And God does have a good plan and good purposes. We'll get to that next time when James summarizes the whole book. You've heard of the patience of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is merciful and full of compassion. That's how it's going to end. But Job doesn't hear that yet. We might want God to tell Job how the story does end up and everything is restored and there's a happy ending and that is coming, but not yet. What God has to say to Job first might be very different than what you or I might expect God to do. What we expect him to do at this point in the story. So just to clarify, we are just focusing on this passage. We cannot cover everything the book of Job has said about God already, let alone everything the Bible says about God's revealed character. So we can never do that in any text, right? There's so much of God in this whole revealed scripture. It we would just be here hours every time just talking about all the things that are true about God. Okay? So this is what God himself in his perfect wisdom decided that Job and the rest of us need to hear at this point in the story. All those other things are still true, but for this morning, and for this point in the story in Job, this is what God says we need to hear. So we need ears to hear it. And if we still think God should have handled things differently than he did, then we are probably in need of the same reminder that Job is about to get. So let's start in 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. 
A whirlwind is a violent wind moving in a circle or a spiral. So think of a tornado-like storm. And Elihu had seen a storm approaching and assumes it's God approaching. In 37, verse 2, listen closely to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that goes out from his mouth. Under the whole heaven, he lets it loose and his lightning to the ends of the earth. After it, a voice roars. He thunders with his majestic voice and he does not restrain the lightning when his voice is heard. God thunders with his voice wondrously. So it's fitting it's raining. If you could have been here about three hours ago, there was thunder. I thought it would have been really cool if God, in his wisdom, had decided, like, let's have a giant thunderstorm that shakes the building and reverberates in our chest and wind just howling out there, and then we'd be in the right frame for hearing what God is going to say to Job in that. That's how he approached Job, not a still, small voice like he talked to Elijah. Remember, Scott Pittman mentioned that last week. Gentle whisper almost to Elijah. No, thunder, <laughs> lightning, wind, boom. Again, maybe you think, God, God should have come in gently. God should have whispered. And God says, no, Job, what Job needs to hear is not a whisper. Job needs to hear thunder that's deafening and that shakes him. So we're already out of step with God, aren't we? God's going to do this differently than we think. And in the middle of that violent thunderstorm, God starts off with a challenging question. Verse 2. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you Instruct me. Job will repeat those very words back to Job in chapter 42 and confess he's the one that was darkening counsel because he did not know what he was talking about. So God asks a rhetorical question. Job remembers the question and then repeats it back to God. That was me, God. I was the one who didn't know what he was talking about. And then after that initial question, God will basically ask Job, are you qualified to evaluate my dealings? Do you really think you could do a better job managing the world than the way I do? Let me ask you some questions to see if you are up to the challenge of contending with me. So think of a freshman taking his first physics class in college. And he keeps interrupting his professor. And his professor happens to be a world-famous physicist. I mean, he's written books. He's respected in the field. He's top-flight physicist. You've got an 18-year-old kid And so the professor, after class, pulls him aside and says, you know, 
Before you interrupt class again to share your thoughts, I want you to take a little quiz. I developed this for young students like you. It's 70 questions about matter and energy, just introductory stuff about physics. Why don't you take that quiz and we'll find out if you're competent to criticize my lectures. And so the student goes, okay, I'll take the quiz. And he takes it and he gets zero out of 70 questions. Zero. Not one right answer. So how would that student feel at that point? Probably a little humbled. Probably like, oh, I guess I was not in my place to think I knew better than my world-famous physicist about how things work. And that's kind of what we have in Job next, because God is going to ask Job 70 questions in a row. And Job will not be able to answer any of them. In chapter 9, verse 3, Job had said, if one wished to dispute with God, he could not answer him once in a thousand times. Well, God isn't going to give Job a thousand. He's just going to give him 70. And Job isn't going to get them right. So we're going to walk through some of them, not all of them which are designed to show Job and us that our understanding of the way God set this world up is embarrassingly limited. So back in 38, verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements, since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of glory shouted for joy? Okay, Job, let's start with the creation of the world. Where were you when I created the heavens and the earth? And what can Job or any of us say in response to that first question? We have to admit, I wasn't there. I didn't even exist yet. You, O oh Lord, created everything by your great power. You didn't need my advice on how to do it. You didn't need my help in making it. So there's a good reality check for all of us. If we had absolutely nothing to do with the creation of the world, why would we presume to tell God how he should run it now? But God has a lot more questions. Verse 8. Or who enclosed the sea with doors? When it burst forth, it went out from the womb. When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, and I placed boundaries on it 
and set a bolt and doors. And I said, thus far you shall come, but no farther. And here shall your proud waves stop. Again, the only answer is I had nothing to do with setting up the oceans and I cannot control the waves. You alone have the ability to do such things, Lord. Verse 12. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? We all can watch a beautiful sunrise but we do not and cannot control it. But God says, I cause that to happen every morning. So Job and the rest of us are already 0 for 3. If we were playing baseball, we have already struck out. And we still have 67 more questions. I encourage you to read all of them in one sitting. It's, it's a great experience. <laughs> Just to read God just ask question after question about how he did this world. But here are a few highlights. Verse 31. Can you bind the change of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth a constellation in its season or guide the bear with her satellites? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens or fix their rule over the earth. So God directs Job and us to look up at the sky on a clear night, away from the streetlights, and we can see countless stars, and we can make out the shapes of constellations in the heavens. But we have no influence over any of that. But God created them all, he names them all, and he guides them all. He says in Isaiah chapter 40, lift up your eyes on high and see who has created all these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. Go to verse 34 back in Job 38. Can you lift up your voice to the clouds so that the abundance of water will cover you. So lots of people complain about the weather. No one seems to be able to do anything about it. We have no control, for example, over when it rains. Nobody here decided it's going to rain now or not rain during workday yesterday. We just have no control. And just this week... Um, I was getting grass seed at a seed store, and the guy asked me, what do you do? I told him I'm a pastor. He said, oh, well, could you put in a word to the big man? Uh, the rain dances haven't been working. <laughs> and I knew I was going to be on this text, but I was just like, even though it's a lack of reverence to call God the big man, it's still an acknowledgment. You know, I could do a, a Native American rain dance, and I can't make it rain. Only God can make it rain. And that's God's point to Job and to us. When you see the rain and you don't control it, or see a sunrise and you can't control it, or all these other things he's going to say and can't control, it's like, I'm God, you're not. I'm God, you're not. So God shifts from asking questions about the sort of the physical world and goes to the animal kingdom. 
and the different creatures he has made and sustained. So chapter 38, verse 39. Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions? 39.1. Do you know the time the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the deer? Verse 5. Who sent out the wild donkey free? And who has loosed the bonds of the swift donkey? Verse 9. Will the wild ox consent to serve you? Or will he spend the night in your manger? Verse 19. Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Verse 26. Is it by your understanding the hawk soars? stretching his wings toward the south. Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? So those are the kind of questions God is asking Job and asking us. And then God pauses and gives Job a chance to reply to these questions. Chapter 40, verse 1 and 2. Then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder Contend with the Almighty. Let him who reproves God answer it. God calls Job a fault finder. To find fault is to point out someone's failure to meet a certain standard. In this case, God didn't meet Job's standard. Job wants to criticize God for how he is running this world. To reprove him for not doing it as well as he should. If you look up reprove, it means disapprove, condemn, scold, or correct. So it's one thing for a mom to scold a five-year-old kid. It's another thing for a five-year-old kid to scold her mom. And it's a really another thing for a finite, fallen human being to scold Almighty God. And God is calling out Job for doing that. You might remember Job had said, God has wronged me. As if he is in a position to evaluate God's dealings and decide if God did the right thing or the wrong thing according to Job's judgment. And in Job's judgment, he hasn't. He failed to meet the expectation. And so he's finding fault with God and criticizing him. And God says, wait a minute, Job. There is a happy ending coming. I am going to relieve you of all your suffering. I'm going to restore everything. I'm going to vindicate your integrity. I'm going to do all those things you've asked me to do. But before I do all that, there's something you need to understand that you are missing. Randy Elkhorn puts it this way. God has not asked us to give him a performance review so he can do a better job next time. God has not asked us for a performance review so he can do a better job next time. 
God does not answer to us. God does not need our approval for how he does things. He does not seek our advice on how he should do things. In Isaiah 40, it says, Who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor to inform him? With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? We sang, who has um, taught the Lord earlier? We don't. We ask him to teach us. C.S. Lewis wrote an essay called God in the Dock. And I'm not talking about a dock in the water for a boat. I'm talking about in the sense of a place in the courtroom where the accused stands or sits during a trial. So to be in the dock is to be on trial. This is what he said. The ancient man approached God as the accused person approaches his judge. For modern man, the role has reversed. He is the judge. God is on the dock. So man's the judge. God is on trial. Man is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the kind of God who permits war or poverty or disease, he's ready to listen. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. So that's what God is reminding Job and us about in that chunk of Job. It's not the only thing he has to say, but it does need to be said that God does not answer to us. We answer to God. And so... God says, will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. And then Job answered the Lord and said, verse 4, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken, and I will not answer, even twice, and I will add nothing more. So Job is starting to get the point. John Piper said, a finite creature who has no wisdom to run this world and is utterly ignorant of 99.999 repeating of any of its processes has no business instructing his maker and ruler how to run the world or condemn God for the way he runs it. And so Job says, I am insignificant or of small account. It's the word, literally, I'm light. It's the opposite of the word translated glory, which is that which makes someone weighty or impressive in others' eyes. So Job, after failing to answer any of God's questions, says, I am unimaginably small before you. I have no business talking as if my words carry any weight. I am 
hopelessly out of my league. And so I'm just going to stop talking. There is nothing I can say right now in light of who you are and what you've just reminded me of, of how you created and ordained everything in this universe. Who am I to say anything right now? And one writer pointed out, God did not specifically tell Job to be quiet. Job simply realized that was the only response appropriate before the awesome God of the universe. That really hit me. God never said, stop talking, be quiet. Job just knew that's what I have to do. Well, sometimes we might think, if I was God, I would do things differently than the way God does them. We might be tempted to think we could do a better job than God does in running this world, or more likely, in running our lives. I think I could do a better job choosing for myself how my circumstances work out. And this works out, this doesn't be a problem. I think God, I could do better than God is doing as far as if I was running the world, I, I would have spared, been spared from that heartache. Or are we delivered by now from this trial? Or I would have had that prayer request answered by now. So God is off in how he does things and when he does things. And he needs to do a better job. And the message that comes through loud and clear in the last five chapters of Job is this. God is God and we are not. God is God and we're not. Stephen Curtis Chapman has a song like that. Catherine Scott has a song that says that. Lots of songs that say that. That's what the Bible says. God is God. We are not. The sooner we start recognizing that, <laughs> the more peace we will have in this world. Because we're always just going to be resisting and button up against reality we can't change. God is God. He's always been God. He was and is and is to come. He's not going to stop being God. And we're never going to start being God. So it's always going to be that way. God's God, we're not. And that's what we needed to hear this morning. Again, God loves you, don't forget that. God cares, don't forget that. God has a plan, don't forget that. Don't forget any of those things. But don't forget God's God, and that we're not. Elizabeth Elliot did not have an easy life. She got married to... Jim, after college, but after just three years of marriage, he was killed when he was only 29. One of the martyrs in Ecuador. And then she got married to Addison, but after only four years together, Addison died of cancer. So that's pretty brutal. Three years of marriage, your husband dies. Four years of marriage, and the second husband dies. That's just besides all the other stuff life throws at all of us. So this is what she said about those kinds of experiences in an interview with Table Talk. 
Table Talk said, you have said that, quote, the deepest things I have learned in my life have come through suffering. What were some of those deep things? The profound and simple truth that God is God. When my husband Jim died, the Spirit of God brought to my mind the words, I am the Lord. Things which sound like platitudes become vital, living, and powerful when you have to learn them in the bottom of the barrel and in dark tunnels. The lesson, I am the Lord, ought to be one that we learn without going through deep waters, but apparently there isn't any other way. Well, at one level or another, we all know God is God. That's what Romans 1 says. Paul says this in chapter 1, verse 20, and then 21. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through that what has been made. So they are without excuse, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. So we all have access to the kinds of things God is pointing out to Job about this universe and the stars in the heavens and the creatures on the land and the creatures of the deep. And we all have that information and all have enough evidence from that to know there's a God in heaven who made all this and who's worthy of honor and thanks. Every single one of us. There is, according to that verse, no such thing as an atheist. Everybody knows. Verse 18 talks about suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. But it's there. Deep down inside, we all know there is a God. And he is God and he's worthy. But all of us have failed to give our creator the honor and thanks that are due him as God. Romans 3.23 says we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all fallen short of God's righteous standards, which is called sin. We've all fallen short of giving God the glory he deserves. And none of us can do anything to offset our sin. When we get to Job 41, God will ask in verse 11, who has given to me that I should repay him? Paul will quote that in Romans 11. And the point is, there's nothing we can offer God that he needs. And there's nothing we can offer God that will obligate him to do something for us. I'll go to church. I'll be a good person. I'll do good things. And in exchange for that, you pay me, God, by giving me heaven or giving me your favor and kindness answer this prayer. We're not in a bargaining position. There's nothing we can offer God to offset our sin or to buy off his favors. But in his mercy, God has provided a way for guilty rebels like us to be forgiven and to be restored. He sent his only son, Jesus Christ, who came to this earth, he lived a perfect life, and then... He died on a cross. And this is how Peter describes what that death was about. Christ died for sins. 
once for all the just or the righteous for the unjust. The unrighteous, that's us. Jesus is righteous, we're unrighteous. He's dying instead of us in our place, taking the sin, the penalty we should pay on himself so that he might bring us to God. So Jesus' death is not just to subtract your sins, as important as that is to remove the barrier between you and God, but to bring you to God. The goal is God, not just, I don't have a guilty conscience anymore. I'm not going to hell anymore. It's, I gain God. I have a relationship with him forever. And that's only through Jesus. And if God is convicting you by the Holy Spirit, this morning, turn from being content with a life of dishonoring and disobeying God and trust in Christ alone to rescue you from sin through his death on the cross and reconcile you to God now and forever. Romans 10 says, There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, one last story that might help summarize what we're trying to do. Albert Einstein's wife was once asked, do you understand the theory of relativity? Anybody here want to say, yeah, I, I get it? It's said that only a few people on Earth kind of understand how E equals MC squared. That energy equals mass times the speed of life, light squared. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> Let alone how you figure it out or how you show it's true. And so you know what Mrs. Einstein said? No. <laughs> I don't. But I know Albert, and I trust him. You see where this is going, don't you? In a similar way, if someone asks us, do you understand why such and such a tragedy happened in this world? Again, just read the news. There's always some kind of tragedy going on somewhere. Some big earthquake, some big flood, some big tsunami, some big, there's always that. Do you understand that, Christian? Or closer to home, do you understand why you're going through this big trial right now? This painful suffering you're going through right now? Do you understand that, Christian? And we can say, no, I don't. I don't understand. I don't think I can understand. But I know God. And I trust him. I know God. I know who he has revealed himself to be in his word and through Jesus Christ. I know him. I know he does all things well. And so even though I don't understand, I trust him. 
And that's where we want to get. Just to know God so well that no matter what befalls us, we cling and trust because he's God. Let's pray. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? Oh, Lord, we bow. We just bow. Like Job, we want to just be quiet for a minute and just acknowledge you're God. You have the right to do everything you choose to do. You do all things well. We are not in a position to criticize you for anything. Lord, we are the ones who don't know what's going on, not you. And so I pray, God, first for your people, that you would strengthen our faith to trust you, to walk by faith, not by sight, not by feelings, not by how things look to us at any given moment, but by what is true about you and clinging to you by faith. Lord, I pray that you would do that in our hearts. I pray for anyone who's here who doesn't know you as the one true living God. It's never come to you through Jesus Christ. Lord, may today be the day they've actually come to know you. It will change everything. Not just in this life, but their whole eternity. So Lord, would you do these things that only you can do because you are God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.